Hi, everyone. Good morning. I'm one of the ones that Kevin was just talking about. Some of you may know me, but others I might be a stranger to. Um, my name is Angela as the parish pastor down there. So we're excited to see you uh, coming up in January for the service there. Um, so I get to kick off Advent with you. But before, is that okay? Am I okay back there? Am I going to blow up? Okay, great. No, we'll see. Uh, so we have a lot to cover this morning, uh, but before I do that, I kind of want to just situate myself a little bit and start with a story. A story that goes back really far. It's a story that's from the late summer of 386. And it happened in a garden. It's a story some of you may be familiar with. There's a man named Augustine who was a crazy, intelligent man from Algeria. He was raised with a Christian mother and a pagan father, and he lived his life questioning everything and running after all things that were awesome and pleasure-filled. He thought Christians were very simple-minded, and he couldn't understand why anyone would follow Christianity. So, like most people who are searching for many, many things, he, he kept moving himself in Milan, searching for truth again. This is the summer of 386. And thankfully, he, was met with a, uh, he met with a Christian bishop named Ambrose, who was able to actually speak to him well, uh, and speak to him in a way that Christianity didn't actually settle with him before. And he struggled. He struggled a lot. And yet, one day in a garden, he, he says he actually heard. Maybe there were children. Maybe it was just in his head. Maybe it was God. I don't know. But he heard children saying, singing a song, saying, pick up and read, pick up and read. Everything's fine. I'm just going to pick up this mic here, and I'm going to do this. Sound good? All right. Uh, pick up and read, pick up and read, and he heard it in his head, and he couldn't figure out where it was coming from, but he felt deeply, deeply convicted to go back to the conversation that he was just having with this bishop and pick up whatever scripture was sitting there. And when he picked it up, he read the exact scripture that we're going to go over today. And from that moment on, a man who thought Christians were stupid became one of the fathers of Christianity. From that moment on, from the scripture we are about to read today, from that garden so long ago in Milan. We're going we're gonna to dive into that, and we're going to see why it makes so much sense for that piece of scripture to be the beginning of Advent for us. But before we do that, please pray with me, because we not only now have to pray for the sermon, we also have to pray for the acoustics. So everyone pray with me, please, okay? Father, we thank you... Um, We thank you for this season. We thank you for all the people who got up this morning and came into church. Thank you for whatever you have stirred in their hearts uh, this morning, this season, this year, whatever it may be. You know what's going on with them. I don't. Uh, Lord, I pray that whatever words I speak today are the words that everyone in this room needs to hear. Let them resonate. Let them sit. Let them be of you, by you, and for your people. We love you and we thank you. Amen. So, before we do anything else, let's quickly talk about Advent. Today is the first Sunday of Advent, like we've been saying, I think three times now during service. 
But what could that possibly mean? Uh, Advent is one of those words that Christians love to throw around, like Christianese in general, uh, and not everyone knows what it means. I grew up in the church, and if you would have asked me as a, as a youngin, you know, what is Advent, Angela? I would say that it's the time that we give more money to our missionaries. I didn't know it had anything to do with anything outside of a giving campaign. Uh, but it's so much more than that. So let's, let's demystify Advent for just one moment so that we can get everyone on the same page. Advent is the season we're entering today. That's why today is so special. Uh, it is the f- historically the four Sundays before Christmas. So that's why we start today. The word Advent comes from a Latin word, Adventus, which means coming. So Christians have been mainly Western Christians, have been celebrating Advent since the birth of Christ, well, a little bit after that, um, to celebrate three pieces of Christ's coming. So the actual Bethlehem story that most people are familiar with, of Jesus actually coming into the world and dying for us, and then this idea of Jesus coming into our lives and living with us, that coming that, for most Christians, needs to be a constant uh, revival within us, And then the third piece of it, which is this idea of Jesus coming back, right? To make all these things that are messy and icky right, finally. So those are the three pieces of Advent that every Christian celebrates as we move into this season. Sound good? We get it? Okay. Not that, yeah, see, we talk about it, but nobody actually talks about it. So that's what we're doing, and that's why we lit that first candle to go for the first week. Okay. So now knowing that, let's go to the text and see why it captivated Augustine so much and why it finds its rightful place on this Sunday, the first day of the Christian calendar. So all the liturgy that we follow, all the scripture that we follow starts today. So good news, everyone, 2016 ends earlier than we thought. Um, See? Um, So Christian calendar starts right now. So we move forward with that. Okay, so the text, if you have your Bibles, um, if you, on phones or actual, if you could turn to Romans, uh, it's in the New Testament, it's the sixth book, right after Acts. Uh, We're going to be reading a piece from Romans 13, and it's chapters 11, I mean, verses 11 through 14. So that's the only text we're looking at today, is in the book of Romans. It's one of the first texts that is a part of a group of scripture for the first day of Advent, and it's the one that I chose to speak to you about. Sixth book, New Testament. So I'm going to read it aloud, and don't worry if you don't get it the first time, because I will be reading it a lot over the next few minutes, okay? Starting with verse 11, it says, And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because ourselves, the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let's put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not carousing in drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. That's our text for today. And in response to this text, remember, this is what Augustine picked up. In response to this text, this is what he had to say. 
No further would I read, nor did I need. For instantly, as the sentence ended, by a light, as it were, out of security infused into my heart, all the gloom of doubt vanished away. That's what he said, just from this text. That's what changed a man to be one of our greatest Christian fathers. Were any of you convicted into an entire life change like Augustine from the reading of that scripture? No need to raise your hands or shake your heads. If not, do you want to know why I think not? Because of the church, and when I say church, I don't just mean the table. I mean the church worldwide, all the people who consider themselves Christians. The church is not awake. <laughs> the church is not awake, and we are definitely not dressed. How many of us feel like we're ready to tackle the day, if you're a coffee drinker, without any coffee, and completely disheveled running out of the house? And yet we do that with our Christian life all the time. We think we can just walk through half awake, stumbling, and somehow <laughs> that's going to work. Why is that? And as a complete disclaimer to this entire sermon, this is not a you sermon. <laughs> this is a we sermon. I am always preaching to myself before I preach to anyone else, and that's particularly why I think this passage stuck out to me so much, because I need it just as much as anybody else does. So these words are for me, for you, for everyone. Let's read the text one more time, and then dive deeper. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not carousing in drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Knowing that, let's do a historical setting as to why Paul. So Paul is the man who is credited with writing this entire letter to the Romans. Paul is credited with writing a lot of the New Testament, and they're all in the form of these letters. That's what we call these books. And Paul was a great apostle for the church. He was not always a great man, though. Um, he had his own conversion story, uh, which is really fun to read. Uh, so he started off somewhere going against the church and then had a conversion story of blindness and became the leader of the church. And Paul most likely wrote this letter to the Romans while he was in Corinth in Greece. So he was sitting in Greece writing to the people in Rome, right? And he wrote to them in Greek. So this letter, the original letter, was written in Greek because all evidence points to the fact that by the time that Romans was actually written, Greek was a, speaking Greek was a normal part of Christian Roman culture. They were bilingual. They spoke many things, right? So majority of Christian text was actually written in Greek to the Romans. And it's actually still in... Some people think that 
they, people have a lot of thoughts on this. Some people think that people from Rome, because it was the epicenter of the empire, some people think that they were, there were people at Pentecost when Pentecost happened, which is the story in Acts, uh, right before Romans, where Jesus ascends to heaven and the Spirit comes down. Some people believe that there were people from Rome at Pentecost, and they brought Christianity back with them. Others believe that because people traveled so much through Rome that they had been a part of a different place in Asia, maybe, where missionaries had already been. And so they came back and brought Christianity with them because Paul had never been there. He was writing to people he had never met. But he knew he needed to write to them. Paul's letter to the Romans was important for many reasons, but two big, big reasons. One, the Roman church itself was important because of where it was, right? It was the empire. It was sitting in the epicenter of everything. And two, it was still an imperfect little church who needed a lot of guidance in growing. And if you notice how the letter, the entire book of Romans, is written, it's not addressed to a particular church. It's not this church in Corinth. It's which leads many people to believe that the church in Rome was made up of many little neighborhood churches. There wasn't just this one church. It was many churches coming together from different neighborhoods, being Christians. And the people comprising these churches were both Jew and Gentile. This baby church in Rome that was maybe 10 years old is figuring out how to do diversity well. We can all resonate with that, right? How to make harmony between multiple different people groups who believe the same thing but were raised in very different places. That was the church he was talking to. That is Romans. And this particular letter from Paul, he wrote, um, he wrote this letter unlike any other letters he's written. It's very long, if you notice. It's many chapters. But if you go, the next chapters are 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. If you want to hear Paul very upset, go read 1 and 2 Corinthians because he was angry at the church in Corinth and he made it well known, right? He didn't want them doing the things that they were doing and he scolded them for it. But Romans, Romans is so different. It is not that, not that at all, actually. That letter served as a literal reprimand to the people of Corinth about how they were treating each other. But the 16 chapters that comprises what we call the Book of Romans is an instruction manual on how to follow Jesus, how to do the gospel. He wrote it so that they would actually know the gospel of Jesus Christ. I see so much of who we are as a church, and, and when I say we, I mean the actual table, this specific church, in the letter to these Romans. A young church on a mission in a very important city. The people he was writing to were already Christians. This was not to evangelize them whatsoever, right? They already believed. None of these people that he was writing to had ever met any of the apostles at this point. They'd never seen Jesus do miracles, and yet they believed anyway. And this passage, this small piece of Romans 13, this small piece of this giant letter to the Romans, indicates to us and to the Romans that even the most sincere follower of Jesus, even the most seasoned follower of Jesus, 
is not protected from temptation, not protected from steering away. It doesn't matter if you're new or old within Christianity. No one is safe from it. There's always room and sometimes absolute need for decisive renewal of your faith. Always. If our relationship with Christ is going to be real, it must be accompanied by a constant reckoning of ourselves and our sins, putting that second to whatever God has for us. It doesn't work if we don't. That's why these words were critical for the Romans, and that's why they are so critical for us today. It's not happenstance that this text is used for Advent. It's a gentle but persistent wake-up call to anyone who believes in Jesus, to anyone who believes that he is who he says he was. Because if we believe that, we know he's coming back. We know he lives in us. He said, and do this. Understanding the present time, the hour is already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. When he says the word present time, when he wrote it, he wrote it in Greek, right? He wrote the word in Greek, which is Cairo, which doesn't, there's two words, there's the chronos and the Cairo for time. He used Cairo because Cairo does not mean what time is it. It means this is the time. People look back, right? Like, you knew where you were when this happened? That's what he's talking about. This is the time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. He doesn't use the typical word for sleep. He uses the word for drowsy the word that we get from Greek, hypnosis, right? It's like you're on Benadryl all the time. That's what he's saying to these people, right? Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Remember, these are Christians. He doesn't need to preach to them about the gospel. They know our salvation is nearer now. The salvation is the reckoning of Jesus coming back and making all things right. That's the salvation piece he's talking about. Because they've already given themselves to God, right? Their salvation is secure. Christians are children of the light. This language strikes a chord with the Romans because the night is nearly over, the day is almost here. There's this, there was this concept that all things were permissible in the night. They're not permissible during the day, right? Do things that are only of the day. Children of the light. Evening service is probably not going to like this, but I think you're all okay uh, with this idea that Christians are morning people. And I knew it. I knew it in my heart for so long because uh, I love mornings too, and so does everyone here but Jessica Breslin. Uh, but we are. We have to be morning people. And Paul is urging the Romans to wipe the sleep from their eyes and look around them. You know, I think it's sometimes difficult for us to wake up from our drowsiness, our Benadryl state. And from my experience and from others, it usually falls into two categories of reasoning. The first 
is either we are too distracted in saying yes to other things, like pleasure or security, to even notice that we've slowly drifted away from God and that our priorities have changed, right? It's so easy to say yes to all the things. It's so easy to show up at the stores when they say they have this sale or this time or you've got to do it now and you just say yes, right? We listen to everyone else but God. So we've let those things dictate us and we've slowly moved over here. The other, the heavier one, is that we are absolutely acutely aware of our drowsy state and choose to stay there. Because waking up, truly waking up to what God has for us means that we have to bring all those things up that we thought we have hidden so well from him. Right? (laughs) It's not true. But we think it, we believe it, so we push it down. So one drowsy state (laughs) is clouded by distractions, the other by shame. Neither of those things should have the authority over our lives that we so freely give them. But just like the Christians Paul is talking to, we do this. And for one reason or another, we stay drowsy. and We can't see anything around us. Thankfully, for the most part, we remain alert enough for people to know we're followers of Jesus. But not alert enough for that to mean anything to them. And I don't mean that as some kind of slight to you. I mean that as us, as one body. Paul goes on to say, So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. The armor of light that he's talking about is described to us in Ephesians, another book in the New Testament, a little bit further back. It's quite small. Ephesians 6 through 13 talks about this armor of God that's waiting for us. The armor of God is girding your waist with truth, putting on the breastplate of righteousness, shotting your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. That is the armor of light that is waiting for each and every one of us. But Paul doesn't end there, does he? He says, let us behave decently, as in the daytime, not carousing in drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, just the same way we do communion with actual pieces of body and blood of Christ, those are those are symbols for us so that we can identify, we can remember what Jesus did for us. Just like the armor, just how the armor is described, it's something tangible so that we can take it and feel like we actually have it. So it's not as mystical as some people may initially think, right? We can think about putting on a shield and a helmet and a sword. And funnily enough, yesterday when I was having this conversation with somebody about my sermon, she mentioned that she was kind of doing something on her phone, and she was talking to herself, and she got really confused, and then she came back to her and said, oh, sorry, I was just putting on my armor. (laughs) And then she looks at my friend, and she goes, you know the armor, right? And she goes, from the Bible? She's like, yep. And like, just 
thinking I'm putting on my armor before I have this really, really hard conversation. That's the tangible piece that scripture wants us to take from this, right? But that's a heavy piece, <laughs> this bottom piece of all the things. Now, Paul most likely wrote these things specifically in this letter to the Romans because he saw many people leaning into this behavior from where he was writing. Remember, go to First and Second Corinthians, see how he yells at them a little bit about what they're doing. He's watching this with his eyes, and then he gets worried about the church in Romans, right? In Rome, like, what are they doing, right? What's happening in, what's happening in Rome? I need to tell them of these things. And most sermons I've heard on this piece of scripture really lay into the laundry list of what Paul describes we shouldn't be doing. I'm not going to do that. Not because I don't agree with him. Behavior separate you from God. And as someone who has very much struggled with desires of the flesh, I know since the moment I said the words distraction and shame, they've been sitting in the forefront of your mind, fighting for space over your attention on this sermon. They're back. They don't go away. And I don't know what you need to wake up from. Truly, I don't. But I know it's something. And I absolutely know until you do, there will always be a filter of X, Y, and Z between you and God. Always. And that armor of light will be sitting right next to your bed, ready to use. But you'll be too drowsy to notice that it's even there. You can't see it. My heart was really heavy writing this sermon. I feel Paul's heart was heavy writing this letter because he had seen the things that keep people from God throughout his travels and from where he was sitting. He knew that this young, promising church of many neighborhoods and diverse people groups in the most important city of the empire was waiting for more direction. He loved them before they knew, he knew them. And better yet, he knew God brought Christianity to Rome for a reason. That's why he wrote this letter. This church was thriving, and he wanted to make sure that it stayed on mission. So just like Paul, who is one of my absolute favorite people, uh, I am going to read a brief letter that I wrote to you all to close out this sermon. And as I close, we'll pray together. Table Church, don't you know what time it is? Not time in the day or even in the year, but time in history. Don't you know that this church was brought together by a few faithful people who were convinced that God wanted to do something in this city they had never seen and that they were going to be a part of it? You are all the people this baby church was praying would walk through those doors three years ago when there were 12 people total. You are the people who took your seat at the table but didn't forget to put another chair next to you before you sat down. Our baby church is growing up. And with that comes growing pains. I believe growing pains are healthy as long as they're temporary and as long as we come out of them stronger 
than when we began. Table Church, don't you know what time it is? It's time to have more conversations. And if there is dissension among anyone in this body, we need to address it now and grow together because a family on mission cannot be divided. And I believe we are that crazy sweet family of Jesus that brings our whole heart to the table and learns to trust each other with it. And now what are we to do with all of this goodness, with all of this promise, with all of this other worldly hope in our beloved coming Christ? We are to wake up from whatever separates us from one another. Because the world needs followers of Jesus who are woke and fully dressed in the armor of God more than ever right now. So table church, don't you know what time it is? It's time to wake up and get dressed because we are Rome and the world is waiting. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for, for people like Paul deeply about your church and about your body and about its health that you put in their hearts to care about people they haven't met yet. You put in their hearts to help direct young churches. You put in their hearts to help move us along on your mission. Father, I know you have big things for this church. I know you have wonderful things in store for the people of this church. I pray, Lord, that you just help each and every one of us wake up from whatever is separating us from you and us from one another. It's time. You know it's time. Holy Spirit, please continue to urge us towards that, towards that goal, towards whatever you have in mind for us this Advent season. Let us be humble as we come to you and come to others with our hearts. In your name we pray, amen.